I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan. Coming to you on a pleasantly breezy afternoon in the mountains of Utah. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that there is a content warning for this episode. There is some swearing. So if you happen to be my mother, or listen with little kids around, maybe come back to this one later. If you don't mind, then forge ahead. My guest today is novelist and comedy writer Robert Brockway. Robert got his start during what many of my listeners will think of as the golden age of Crack.com, editing and writing funny articles that were read by hundreds of thousands of people every week. Robert's comedy chops have since moved on to co-found 1900hotdog.com. Robert is also the author of the post-apocalyptic horror novel, Carrier Wave, and The Vicious Circuit, an urban fantasy series from Tor Books. Robert and I discuss his early days at Crack.com, the responsibility of making people laugh, the difficulty of managing mental and physical health while creating, and the horrors of being thrown into the deep end of public speaking as a new author. Enjoy my conversation with Robert Brockway. How do you feel about Cheetos? How do I feel about Cheetos? Uh, I feel ambivalent about about standard Cheetos these days. I kind of like the crunchy ones, and I'm all about the white cheddar baked puffs. I I realized that I have never had anything but original Cheetos. Really? You haven't had the, the deviants, the mutations? Cheetos have thrown off. No, like like because I've got friends that like swear by the the uh, the like flaming Cheetos or whatever they're called. Yeah, like, I can't do those anymore. My body hates me enough. It doesn't need any help. <laughs> right, we're getting old, right? Yeah, I'm I'm getting old in just just rapid like lost crusade time. I picked the wrong Grail. Is what's happening to me right now. <laughs> it's the worst. How have you been doing? I've been doing okay. I mean, my like I said, my body's garbage, but I'm coming to peace with that fact uh work's been good i hear there's a plague on uh, but you haven't noticed uh no i've basically just been working <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's like there's like three or four times where i, I look up and around I'm like i'd like to go do this oh i shouldn't go do that and that's it like my my life as as a person who works a lot indoors by themselves on a computer is mercifully i guess unaffected Aside from, you know, general terror. You don't think it's uh, like you don't feel like oppressed by the whole thing or like you've cut your social life or anything like that? I certainly feel like there's a plague on. I mean, it's there's like a general psychic malaise that, that comes along with right. living through a fucking pandemic. But like my social life was never great. Like I did this, you know, even when I worked at Cracked, I worked at Cracked full time. And then I wrote books in my spare time. So I just. I went from one computer and I would try to use a different computer to make it feel like I was doing something different. Uh, those are little tricks, little fun tricks you have when you're 
an isolated workaholic, I guess. But uh, no, not not. It's not too dramatically different for me. It it was nice for like a week there when we were allowed to go out and do stuff, especially in Connecticut, which had a really good vaccination rate and didn't have didn't see a lot of cases. We we went out and did, I believe, three things the past year and a half. So those three things were real fun. Do you say you're in Connecticut now? Yeah, I'm in Connecticut now. My wife's from here. When did you move? It's almost a year ago now. Almost been here a year. It'll be September. We'll be here a year. So you moved during the middle of the pandemic. We moved in the middle of the pandemic. It was terrible. I do not recommend it. Uh, it was the most stressful thing and, and nothing worked and everything was closed and you had to disinfect everything. So we still thought it was mostly mostly touch-based, mostly surface-based at that point. And uh, staying in hotels, it was just, it probably took like a good four years off my life of just stressing all the way across the country. Well, I bet, because moving at best is always stressful. And then moving across the country sucks a lot. We moved from Tucson, Arizona to to Connecticut. So it was like 3,000 miles in four days. It was awful. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's rough. <laughs> it was rough. It uh, definitely... Hey, there's probably a reason why my body is garbage now. <laughs> but that just I bet that just destroyed me. Just aged you yeah. significantly. That was that was my wrong grail. I picked the wrong grail, a wrong moment to do that that big move. Was it a was it like a work thing for your wife or was it just a you guys wanted to be closer to her family or Yeah, just closer to her family. We moved to Tucson just cuz I liked Tucson and I was having like real real problems with living in Portland after 20 years of just just rain all the time and I, it finally like crept up on me all at once so we we both like tucson we moved there and then megan's family is here so we we didn't have anything keeping us there yeah that was basically why i left cleveland is because i was just like i'm so sick of rain all the time and yeah if it's not raining it's cloudy Yeah, i did 20 years of that and that is quite enough it's yeah it, it's oppressive you know it kind of beats you up. it is it really does it just wears you down i was very very just weary all the time. And then the doctor was like, your vitamin D levels. Cause I had one of those doctors that loves to measure those. You sometimes get them. It's like, yeah, they're the lowest I've ever seen. And I live in Portland. I've been practicing for decades. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's probably a problem. Yeah. <laughs> were you, uh, when you worked at crack, did you work out of an office or did, were you just at home? We did for a little bit. We tried that as kind of an experiment in the Back in like right when they first hired me, I had to move down to Santa Monica in 2011. Well, 10 years ago. Uh, wow, that didn't feel like 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, I got some I got some stuff to think yeah. about. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we tried it for, I don't know, a couple of years and some of the other folks liked it and they stuck around. And then after just all of the stuff that went down with Cracked, uh, nobody had to stay anymore so a lot of us just scattered back to where we came from i went back to to portland but i was ruined by southern california i was just my body would not accept portland again yeah that's uh man i it's weird how you like you, when you're young you just you don't even seem to notice the weather and then like there's a like an age you reach and then you're suddenly like looking around at the weather all the time you're yeah. checking it. You're looking outside. You're like looking through your blinds, you know, just glaring at the of, clouds. I see you about to do something. Get the hell out of here. Right. It's God. It's like the worst feeling. Yeah. And I, I just it really was Southern California that broke me. It was 20 years of rain. And then I went to Southern California for like two years and tried to go back to the rain. And my body just just rebelled. Would not take it. I, yeah, man. Uh, what are you working on these days? Uh, I've been getting more into screenwriting in my like off time. 
Uh, but but my day job now is 1900hotdog.com. I guess this counts as my plug, too. Uh, it's a comedy site. It's a daily comedy site that me and Sean Baby, also formerly from Cracked and everything else, everything else on the internet, formerly done everything. Uh, we just write daily comedy. We have our own podcast, the Dog Zone 9000, where we, we just crack jokes. And the idea behind that is that we don't want to do everything that what the, the big content age was all about, where it was chasing chasing algorithms, chasing titles and and doing, you know, downer stuff and insulting people's favorite things. So we just want to do funny, interesting stuff again. We find like cursed artifacts and review them. And uh, that's been my day job. That's most of my time. And then uh, my off time, I've been getting into screenwriting, which has been very interesting and very hard to switch gears from books. I'm fighting books the whole time, just me and books against each other, trying to turn them into scripts. Right, because it's it's such a different thing because the, the, they feel so, especially because like you write pretty fat books. I have. My last book was like 800 something pages. Before that, they weren't like the, the Vicious Circuit trilogy that I did with Tor. Uh, each of those was probably around 300 pages. They were nice and lean. And then I stopped for like two years to write Carrier Wave, which was 800 something pages. And it was awful. And I guess I decided I'm going to write screenplays now because they're they're like 20,000 words tops. Yeah, and it's but it's but, but that's like a totally different uh like you said it's a totally different gear you have to be in in your brain. Yeah, like you're sort of tempted by like, oh, well it's short, it's only 20,000 words, but coming from books you're like, I can't do this in 20,000 words. I can't do all of this. You want me to have characters and arcs and you want me to like set up motifs and plot threads and then deliver ah, it's so tough. I just just give me just like 40,000 more words, please. Right? <laughs> Right. Nobody's going to turn down an 800 page screenplay. <laughs> right. That's all I need. It'll be fine. It'll be, I'll be the first. I'll be the one that makes it worth it. I'll be like the, the Alan Moore with his million word novel. <laughs> Just a 12 hour movie. <laughs> it's, like, it's very marketable. I promise. Right. We, we get all of the stuff that you get in a two hour movie. I promise. Just 12 yeah. hours of it. It'll be fine. Theaters won't mind. Zack Snyder can do it now. Right. We're opening the door for 12 hour movies. Right. Oh, man. And they're like there's like rumors going around that there's like a four to six hour cut of Dune. Um, man, <laughs> uh, you don't need the extra time. I've, I've read, I, I don't know, the first like six Dune books or whatever that whatever the number was back in the day. No, <laughs> no, there was like six or something. I read like the first three and that was plenty. <laughs> the first one I loved so much. The second one was like, oh, third one. Like, oh, I just I have to do it. I said I'd do it. I I adore Dune. Like the original Dune is top five books. E- Such a good book. I, Easily, it's so good. Got me but, through two other books of Dune. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that I would watch a six hour Dune. Um, I might hate myself after it, but I'd still do it. Yeah, I I would do it just to know. But but I'm one of those people that like watching like uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine like. I was living for those like long, lonely shots of sci-fi scapes and stuff like that. I adored that. Right. But that was good. That was a good movie. <laughs> and, they did a yeah. good, and they did a good job on it. I think that I think that's the difference between a lot of these between my 12 hour movie and Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> yeah. I think the difference is uh, a goodness. What um, do you do you find like because we talked a little bit about shifting gears in terms of scripts and stuff, but do you find that 
you struggle with stri- switching between like novel writing or even screenplays uh, to the kind of the short form comedy. Yeah. Is that weird? Yeah, it's weird. Each of the formats is weird because I'm still working on a book. Like I finished my first draft of a book and I got some good feedback that is going to make a substantial teardown of the book that I'm going to have to redo. And so I'm trying at some point to also think about that and get get like book gears working, get screenplay gears working. But then also my daily job of, of writing comedy all the time. I don't have, you know, an article every day. It takes me more than a day to write an article, but we have multiple articles a week and then we have like a comedy podcast. So I have like six different storytelling gears to go through. And sometimes you just you come into it and you're writing like a book, like it's a comedy article. You know, no, I'm like riffing on something in the book. I'm like, no, you can't, you can't do this. Or I try to try to bring books into like scripts. And then I'm, I'm writing like exposition in the action lines of a script. Like I can't, I can't get away with any of that. You have to just, just either figure out a way to switch gears, which sometimes, uh, oftentimes for me is just going back and rereading stuff until my brain sort of picks up the cadence of what I'm doing. Uh, and that also helps with editing. I mean, the more passes you can do on something, the better it's going to be. So it never you know, harms you to go back and, and read through that stuff. But sometimes it's I'll have to go read something else. I'll have to go read like one of Sean's articles on the site or something to get like my brain targeting, targeting this thing. Or I'll have to read a bit of a book or I'll have to open up a script or watch a movie or something that just makes your brain think in those patterns. Because they're very different patterns. Yeah, I um, I. I you said something that I, I'm interested by because like a lot of writers, I, I don't really ever hear anybody talk about this, but I always think of writing in terms of cadence, uh, in terms of like kind of the beats that you, it, once you become an experienced writer, you, you just kind of naturally know the beats of, you know, a narrative or even an article or, you know, whatever it is you're working on. And, uh, and it's, it's weird because I, I often, well, you know, I'll do a podcast or I'll do a guest article or something, or I'll even just do like a Reddit AMA and they'll say, oh, what's your advice for this thing? And I kind of, sometimes I feel like really at loss because like a lot of the writing I do is very instinctual. Um, like you get somebody like Brandon Sanderson who lives to, to figure out the, like the science of writing mm-hmm. and he he categorizes every little thing and i i feel like i i write by instinct so much more than that yeah me too it's very much like my only writing advice that i have i have a few pieces of writing advice and the only really useful one i have is just write a lot mm-hmm. like do it and if you're having problems like is this not going to be any good it's probably not very good that's not the point <laughs> you gotta just do it yeah and it's gonna be garbage and maybe you'll have to throw it away but then you'll do something else and that's that's like almost exactly where i am with screenplays right now like i'm iterating and iterating and reiterating on on a concept to try to get the best draft i can and i know when i'm done it's probably going in the trash <laughs> but you get to, you have to do it you have to do it until it it works and like maybe i know everybody learns differently i think that's one of the best things i've learned as i get older is exactly how i learn like the method then and more importantly what doesn't work for me yeah and it, and it's the the brandon sanderson style not that there's anything against it some people just learn work break things down in that fashion and i don't i can't like read a book about something and then immediately go practice it i have to read that book after i've done it and failed a few times and then i read the book and go okay this is what the book so i should have done this this way like i just have to do things in my own order and and so yeah it's a lot of a lot of instinctual flow and pacing. And and that's kind of what makes it hard to learn something new is you get frustrated. Like if this was a damn book, I would have this, I would have this on lock by now. 
and it's not and i don't yeah i uh i think about that in terms of like um i guess in terms of learning something and, and like reading about writing like you said it's like it's almost useless if you haven't done it yet because your brain hasn't filled in the context of what of, of what all the advice is about so so you don't even it's like having a mechanic say to you, oh, the flibberty gibbet underneath the other thing, that's what you have to do. And you're like, I don't know what any of those words mean. Right. Well, I mean, that's how our brains work. But some people are like, I'm going to read that book. Like I used to know a guy that would, well, I know a guy. He was like my my car parts guy when I was working on old cars. Mm-hmm. And he'd go in there and he'd said like, well, you just get the manual. And he gave me like a manual. And he's just read it cover to cover and then you'll have it. I'm like, no. Dude, I like I re- I did my best. I read like fifty pages of just not understanding a single word. I didn't retain any of that information. It didn't help me at all. And he would I could never make him understand that because that's how he learned. He would just that's how he taught himself. He sat down and he read a, a book cover to cover, and then he went out to the car and was like, "Oh, this is what the book was talking about," and then just did it. I'm like I, I don't learn that way. I can't do that way. What I have to do is I have to go out there and just ruin a car. I have to go out there with a hammer and some fire and just destroy something beautiful and then afterwards i have to be like well i shouldn't have done that so what next time what can i not do what can i not do out of this like that's that's my learning process it's pretty good it's pretty good now that i know it now that i know that and embrace it like i can work with it right like like i think most create most creative careers are kind of learning how you function inside of a Mm -hmm. uh inside of like a mechanism where everybody's different because it's not like it's not like accounting or something where you have solid numbers and you just learn how to do databases you kind of have to you kind of have to learn how your brain wraps itself around all of this stuff and then create something totally yeah that's definitely i mean that was and that's the struggle at least for me the first few years i was doing it i was trying to figure out how I how I do this. And in doing that, I was trying on everybody else's advice. I was trying on other people's techniques. And it just didn't necessarily work. I don't I didn't really produce anything usable in that time. I did my first book, uh, RX, which was like a sci fi novel that I guess it did. It sold pretty well. It did pretty well. A lot of people still talk to me about how they like it. Yeah. But I mean, after a few years, once I had figured it out, I'd gone back and like looked at it. I hated it so much that I pulled it. I just pulled it. It's gone. It's off of the internet now. Uh, I'm trying to figure out a way to like rework it. Maybe I can go back and edit. I'm probably never going to have that time. I probably just have to accept like, I did not know what I was doing. And I gave it to people and they enjoyed it. And I'm glad they enjoyed it. But I, I cannot in good conscience leave that out in the world. So you actually put a book out and then pulled it later. Yeah, I put a book out in 2012. I think RX was. Because my very first book was called Everything is Going to Kill Everybody. And that's out of print just from a publisher. But that was all that really was, was cracked articles. Like it was a collection of essays around a theme, which was the apocalypse. Yeah. And like the real ways the apocalypse would happen. And like I could do much better than that now. Some of the jokes haven't aged well, but it was still a skill set I had at, at that time. So it wasn't so far outside. And then I, I knew I wasn't ready for an actual book. So I wrote RX as a serial novel. I like I wrote a part and then I put it out there. And I devised like this complicated system where you could wind up getting just the whole thing for free. And I, I put that out there and I, I took feedback on each part as it came along. And then I instituted that, that part for, the, for that feedback for the next part. So like I learned as I went, I took feedback from people as I went. And I thought this is a really good idea. 
nobody's ever done this before. And it turns out there's a reason nobody had ever done that before <laughs> because it was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> it took me so, it's so much work, so much more work than just writing a normal book to like go back and like try to fix all these things. And it didn't end up hanging together well. But again, like that was me ruining that car. I had to go out there with this book and just be like, everybody stand back, stand back, put on your ponchos. I got a sledgehammer. I'm going to Gallagher this son of a bitch all over the place. And, uh, and I learned, I learned from that. That's good. That's good. I, I think that like a lot of times when you look at like little baby writers, like taking their creative writing classes or whatever, that you often have people that like you, you have people on the two ends of the spectrum, like that either they have zero self-confidence and so they won't, they won't, they won't finish things. They won't, you know, kind of go through and, and kind of do the process in the first place. Or you have people with all the self-confidence who are so convinced that they are the next Stephen King that they just don't learn from anything. Yeah. And I, I honestly, it's probably the only time I'll ever say this, but I'm very thankful for my wildly fluctuating self-esteem because <laughs> I, I have both of I have both of those extremes where I'll be writing something or just more likely editing something. And I, I never really feel like this is pure genius as I'm writing something, but sometimes I'll come across like passages or just the structure, maybe even a whole story and I'm editing and I'll come slowly commits like i'm a genius this is the best thing i've ever written and then i'll, I'll re- revisit the next day and be like this is garbage god damn it it's all garbage i can't use any of this so i think between the two i i wish i could just always be at that medium level where like i'm pretty good i got stuff to learn but no it's just megalomania or just in the dumps depression do you do you kind of as somebody who who like you said you're a bit of a workaholic and you're just at home at your computer all the time. Do you do anything to try to kind of manage your mental health? Uh, no, and it has not been a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't follow don't follow my example. Uh, my physical health too. Like I just like all of my problems are work based. I really messed up my back. My eyeballs are giving out. Like because especially once we started one nine hundred hot dog. Because the last few years it cracked. I was just I was so depressed. I didn't want to do it. I was still doing it. I felt like I had to go down with the ship. Like, I believe I said those words to myself on more than one occasion, just going down with the ship. I'm like, it's never going to treat your creative or mental health very well to have that mindset. And uh, But I stayed on and it was just sapping the life out of me. And then I, I went into like 1900 Hot Dog working with Sean, baby, who even before I learned about Cracked was my favorite comedy writer just ever. He was, he was great, a huge influence. And it, I was so high on that that I, I just threw myself fully into that. But then I also wanted to finish up Carrier Wave. I was working on Carrier Wave. And in that last part where this is going really well, I know exactly what I need to change. I'm wrapping it up. I started new projects and I just really wanted to keep working. So I did keep working and I, I paid the price. Like I definitely it hasn't been great for my mental health to, to just abandon everything to work in the middle of a pandemic. And I think maybe that was kind of a defensive mechanism, you know, like seeing the world, so much of the world, not just, not just the pandemic, but so much of the world go to chaos. Like you want to do something you have control over. So this isn't just an activity. This isn't just me like tending to a plant because I have control. I have control over the whole world. This is mine. I do all of this. So like, why not? Why not throw yourself into that? And I've been extremely productive until I completely fell apart. So yeah, don't do that. I should have, I should have done more stuff for mental health. I don't have any mental health tips aside from don't do that. Don't do what I did. I was, uh, I was talking, I was doing a recording with uh, Pierce Brown last night and, and he's talking about editing or uh, he's talking about um, 
He's talking about uh, meditation and journaling and self-help and and I'm thinking, man, how do you how do you manage all of that? And also, you know, put out books like like I, I I've been trying to lose weight and I've been fairly successful so far, but like but I still feel like either I can exercise and watch my eating or I can be a productive author. I, I don't know how to do both. Yeah, I'm trying to to find that balance where there's just so much I want to do. There's so many projects. There's so many things I want to and I want to give each of them the full attention that they deserve so that they can be the best thing they can possibly be. And that takes time. It takes time. It takes effort. And I also really want to do and have to do my day job. Yeah. And I, I have all of these things that I just I really, truly want to do them. So it's it's kind of a it's like a Twilight Zone curse where I have all the, I have all the work I want that is great. And then I, I just I love to do it. I want to do it. It's going really well. But you also have to do everything else. You have to take care of yourself. You have to eat food like an idiot. You have to you have to go outside and you have to walk your dogs and, <laughs> and experience love. Like just you, uh, who has time for it? You got to make time for it. And I, I'm I could be better about it. Are are you one of those people that when you're in a funk or when you're in like a really like in the zone, do you eat too much or too little? Uh, it's been I mean, it's kind of both in that I won't eat maybe sometimes all day and then I'll just I'll come out and I'll be like, I need a three pound burrito. And I'll eat the entire three pound burrito and be like, I should not have had that three pound burrito. But like I, I'll just yeah. remember to do it all at once, and then like hey, and it's that's I'm having GI issues. Don't do that. Don't do that either. Like yeah, don't do any of the things. <laughs> Somebody, if I had had a life coach, they would have just put a big X over my whole deal. Just, <laughs> nope, gonna have to figure out something else. Yeah. Do you, Do you find Do you find that uh, like I mean I guess maybe this is a loaded question because like we just had like the the Bo Burnham special was kind of all about this, like creating comedy during like a plague. Does that feel weird to you or natural? It, it feels fairly natural to me now. It was certainly because we started it. We started this in February of 2020. Yeah. It, it didn't launch until March, but we wanted to have like a backlog and we wanted to, you know, handle all the business stuff and have it really just ready to go and set up. So we started it in February and they, we're just talking about it. Like you were just starting to be worried about it. Is this going to be something or is this like going to be SARS where it's bad? It's bad in, you know, the places that it is, but it never touches us here. Is it something that I personally have to worry about or that we have to worry about, you know, in a larger sense? Nobody at that point really knew. Yeah. And then right as we launch in, in March, it just, it starts to really hit and anybody that's paying attention is like, oh, this is a very bad thing. And so it, it just kind of, it, it felt irresponsible at times. And I certainly, I had my book launch for carrier way around that time. That was way harder for me to do because I, with the feedback I had from one hot dog, people signing up for it and people discovering us were like, I just need something that's not the news. It's not politics. It's not Trump. It's not pandemic. It's not global warming. It's just like, it's really been really good for my mental health to like read this and, and just laugh at something with very low stakes for me personally or the world. And I don't mean to disparage them, but it's not, you know, it's not like the Daily Show where you're learning about something and you're laughing. And it's also like a call to action. It's just it's just a release valve. And that's all it is. And people really appreciated that. But then I came out with a book that it wasn't about the pandemic. It was about like a signal that spreads like a, a noise. But that's pandemic adjacent enough that I felt really weird. Yeah. Like trying to plug people here. You guys read this. And you might, it's not about the pandemic, but you might see something adjacent to it 
And that's not great because like some bad stuff happens in the book. Here, buy it. Buy it to reflect the world out there. So I was I was really messed up trying to promote that book more than more than the site. The site felt site felt okay to launch into, probably because I got that positive feedback as we were doing it. Like you put out an article, takes you, you know, a week to write it. The next day it's up and people are talking about it and they're telling you what they like about it or what they what they didn't if they didn't, how it helped them. It's just Man, there's that that dopamine rush from being an author where you get good reviews for your book, only it's it's kind of small scale and every day. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that because it's because you have uh, when you're creating content like as much as you do, it feels to me creating that much content feels sounds really stressful, like trying to get something out uh, and on a on a weekly or, or many times a week. Because I write these big fat novels that I can take a year or two years on and then and perfect them and sculpt them until bam, it's there. But also, like you said, that dopamine rush of putting little things out and actually having people respond to what you're doing in uh, not necessarily real time, but but in a much more regular fashion. Yeah, brains are nuts. Brains are nuts. They do some wild things. And that's definitely like, you can almost get addicted to it. Where like, if if you take a hiatus from it after you do this for a long time, if you put out something every week for like six months and then you're like, something comes up, I need to take a month off. You can spiral. You have, your brain just, it doesn't have that like feedback. You're like, oh, well now I'm worthless. Like nobody's enjoying a thing that I did. Even if I'm working on a book at the same time or something that like personally I'm being productive and I'm being creative and I should feel good about it. If I'm used to that hit and I take it away, it's just like a withdrawal. Like you're just now I'm worthless because I don't have a thing out there right now. So I'm being I'm being forgotten. I'm being made obsolete. And like none of this even mattered. And you got to stop and try to wrestle your brain out of that and be like, no, 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 we're, we're doing this thing now. It's OK. We'll go back and do that thing. It doesn't have it's not we don't have to crash afterwards. But but man, you can you can get addicted to anything. That addiction cycle just works on, on anything. People people get addicted to anime girls and mobile games and we'll spend eight hundred thousand dollars on them and like i can i can't really even blame them for that because i i have my own stupid addictions right i think everybody does you know whether it's yeah chocolate or video games or whatever um you know as as long as your addiction is not killing you quickly or killing other people you know then it's probably for the best i mean not quickly it's not killing me quickly so so it's fine i I mean all of our stuff is killing us slowly though right (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, we're not. Nobody's making out of this one clean. That's true. <laughs> we're all gonna die, and that's okay. Uh, it's kind of. I feel like that's become my mantra. Yeah, I mean, once you're at peace with that, as we all are increasingly learning to be. Yeah. What's left? You know, world's your oyster. Well, so what? I'm gonna die. <laughs> it's probably. It's probably not great in the long term. I'm sure a psychologist will tell me all about that. I don't need. I don't need to hear your nerd words about mental health. Further ignore it. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How, uh, how old were you when you started with Cracked? I was 27 when I started with Cracked. That was 2007. Uh, that was my first article. I responded to like a call for writers that they did. They used to post them every Thanksgiving. So it was November 2007. And then where anybody could just go into a writer's workshop that they had and you pitch something. Yeah. And they had a bunch of guides for like this. This is what we want to do. This is how you can like try to come up with an angle for an article. This is how we want to see your pitch formatted. Uh, and then they would come back. Somebody would come back personally on your pitch and say yes or no, first of all. And if it was a hard no, they'd try to like give you some general writing advice. If it was a soft no, that you always tried to give them advice like, here's how to improve it for us specifically. Here's here's what we'd like to see. And you could you could go back and forth on that for a little while and then eventually accept it or not accept it and write it. So I went into that system and I started writing the articles and they would give me feedback and I would come back. And I just kept getting them accepted. I think I had like 10 accepted in a row, which nobody else had done. So they were finally like, okay, do you want a job? Yeah. <laughs> yes, clearly I'm doing, I was doing IT support at a college. And I don't know anything about computers. I mean, I know like, a little, I know the same <laughs> amount as you, but that whole job, I was just like on the razor's edge. I was just, I had, I was one Google ahead of being fired all the time. So like, yeah, when they said, do you want a job? And and offered me at first just a contractor position, which was not a ton of money, but it was more than I had ever made at that point in my life. I now recognize was not like enough to live on for like a reasonable person, totally enough to live on for me at that time. It was just, yes, this will buy me all the paps and ramen that I could ever want. And so I, I accepted it and then they just kept liking and I got, you know, went from a contractor to a better position, became a columnist, just all from, you know, submitting to to this one-time call for writers and following through and just listening to feedback. Here's here's how to make it better. That's kind of cool. I like, because you and I had a, kind of a similar discussion uh, a few years back at Tucson Festival of Books mm-hmm. where um, I, I was, I feel like, I, I mean, I'm not sure, I, I'm sure you are aware of this, but I feel like that there are a lot of people now in their 30s and 40s who kind of, grew into internet adulthood by reading cracked every day yeah we get we get a lot of men i i'm still there with a lot of those people who followed us to one nine hundred hot dog and stuff well we have people that were our age that you know we're along for the ride but there are also people who are like yeah i read this as a teenager and now you're you're like a 26 year old and you're rubbing that in my face yeah and now i'm adult you <laughs> can't be an adult if you were reading my work when you were like a 12 year old it's it's insane but yeah, there's, there's some of them there that definitely came along with a cultural moment to kind of grow up to. And I get that a lot. And it's a crazy amount of responsibility that I really don't like to think about. I, I, I guess I I wouldn't frame it in terms of you have any responsibility there. I, I just think it's kind of cool that you were like, honestly, when we first met, I kept thinking how cool it was that I was talking to someone who was involved in that kind of 
framing of a huge part of my kind of online life for many years. Um, and I imagine that there's quite a few listeners that probably feel the exact same way. Yeah, for a lot of people, it was a very important part of, at the very least, a daily routine. Like everybody said, I would, for like five, six, seven years there, every day at work, I would open it up and crack to be like the good part of my morning. Right. And, and then other people just read us, you know, at school or they followed along and, and had a, a much larger influence than any of us. I thought, I thought any of us other certainly conceived, but also really understood like it's hard to understand when you see those numbers on like cracked back in the day they've taken the hit counter off now because it became embarrassing but when you when cracked back at our peak like anything that i wrote would see half a million readers and i would just think i can't think about that or i'm going to die i'm just gonna curl into a ball and die to just think about half a million people reading whatever this bullshit was that I did this week. So yet there absolutely there was some sort of like the influence. I should not have that number of people taking my thoughts into their body. It's not healthy. But but yeah, the responsibility of that was paralyzing. Even if nobody gave me any response, even if it was just just a number, the responsibility of that number was was oftentimes terrifying the success that we saw. Do you think uh, do you think comedy is a responsibility? You know, because like there's there's some element of that has been monetized these days. I mean, you can go back to The Daily Show under Jon Stewart. You could go to uh, Last Week Tonight. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that is kind of has created its own responsibility as like a comedy, but like watchdog sort of news thing. But like just regular old comedy of of writing jokes and just getting a chuckle out of people. Is there a responsibility there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not it's not doctor responsibility. It's it's maybe not even like really good mechanic responsibility. But there's something there in that these people are choosing to spend oftentimes their money, certainly their free time and attention in the Internet era of today where you have video games that can take you to another world. You have these fucking crazy movies that are just amazing and have all the all the money in the world. You have great books and comic books and podcasts and there's entertainment and your time can be spent for free or for very little money on anything in the world. So somebody choosing to pay attention to you, it's kind of a responsibility not to let them down to at least give everything you have to it. Yeah. I, I just got no respect for a half-assed comedians that toss something out. Because a lot of them, a lot of people, especially in the YouTube era, will talk about how easy it is for them. I just toss this out in like 20 minutes and that's kind of a brag for them. And I, I don't think that's, I think that's disrespectful. I think that's the respect you got to have of putting the thought and the time and the effort into it. Even if it's just a dumb joke about comic books or whatever, if you, you you're, you're supposed to care about it because people could be doing so much better with their time than listening to your jokes and they're choosing not to and maybe give you money. So yeah, it's something. I, I wonder, um, do you, do you kind of, take that line of thought further with because like I've talked about this with a couple of my guests on the podcast but there's you know there's there's kind of a controversy over it in my little corner of novelisting um with epic fantasy and a couple of the big authors who just don't produce do you do you have similar thoughts on that kind of thing yeah that's a, that's a very different thing to me uh just not producing I'm trying to set aside my personal feelings because you're also a reader of these things. And I am a fan of these things, which we shall not mention because they're very big bridges and we don't want to burn them. I don't have enough fire to burn that bridge. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also a fan of those things. So personally, as a fan, I understand I want more of those. I want closure on that story. That That's, you know, sort of a social contract. 
But on the other hand, if that person really doesn't have it or if they just don't have it right now, do you want that from them? Do you want a terrible effort? Because there was this this big show that has probably nothing to do with what we're talking about, this big HBO show. And people <laughs> got that hasty effort to wrap it up and they were not happy. They would, right. if you would ask them, would you have rather this just not happened? They would have said, yes, I would rather you have just maybe tragically canceled after season five or something. And we had a lot to revisit and a lot of fun, and a lot of cool stuff. And maybe somebody can pick it up again someday and we'll, we'll get that movie resolution or whatever. It's better than closing it the wrong way. So if they don't have it or if they don't have it right now, I think it's probably the smart move to not do it. That's um, I feel like that's surprisingly generous, to be honest. And I, I think that you're right in a lot of ways. It's, it's interesting because everybody feels differently about it. And, and you can have f- both fans and other authors. Um, everybody kind of has a different opinion and a different uh, and, you know, some people won't go on the record on it and some people will. And it's yeah, it's it's interesting how everybody has their own kind of take. Yeah, it's but everybody's got such a hot take about that particular topic. Like it's nobody's nobody seems well, a few people, me, for example, have tepid takes on it. But <laughs> but people are just real spicy about that. And it's it's surely I, I guess I wasn't paying attention before this, but it's surely happened before in history. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. I think the Internet must be fueling and connecting and certainly giving longer legs to like that outrage. I, I would imagine, um, especially with like social media and, you know, you the, the average fan has pretty easy access to to, you know, 80 percent of the author authors that they like um, just because they can say, oh, well, this author is is cooking some brioche this morning. You can see anything on social media and it's unprecedented access. It's amazing. Like, could you imagine when we were kids going to like school or something and finding a book club, not just for like the genre you like, and not just for even just books, just finding somebody else that read books would have been amazing, but finding like a huge fan club for one specific author or even narrower to one specific work by that author. And you find out there's like 20 kids in this room that just want to talk about like the first book of Dragonlance. Like, what? It would have blown your mind. You would you would never find somebody that was on your particular wavelength. And now everybody has that for everything all the time. And then, yeah, you can lose perspective in that room real quick. You can get that room real riled up and stay that way for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I think there is an aspect of that that's super cool that fandoms and stuff like that can can meet and be together it's and very cool yeah but like there's also part of that that's you know that that has it's the same cancer of any social media stuff where it's like where it becomes too much of a good thing and then people start getting angry all the time uh about s- topics that don't matter at all uh and that's that's weird to me i mean it's that same feedback loop i was talking you can get addicted to anything people can get addicted not just to social media but very specifically the anger they feel about things on social media and then you just come there this is where i go to get mad and then i get mad and i feel really good about like what i've done while i was mad and then i'm gonna go do something else and i'm gonna come right back here in an hour and see like the results of my anger and that's that's addicting you've got a feedback loop now you've got a you got a gameplay loop to come back to just gamifying fury and it's it's dangerous but yeah it's also very cool like i like i said you can go find that fandom for that one thing when when i was a kid i couldn't talk to anybody about almost anything i had to find like the big mainstream thing that was kind of close to the thing i liked and we could talk about maybe we could talk about star wars together or something 
that was big enough that you could find somebody else into it. But if you wanted to get any more niche than that, I, you were just alone, basically, until then. So it's done some, I mean, it's like anything else. You've done some amazing things and it's it's got some some cancer growing on it that, uh, that I don't know we can get rid of. I think it's kind of part of it. Yeah. Do you... Uh... So I'm actually very, I don't know anything about the comedy book world, um, because in, in, at least in genre fiction, it's Terry Pratchett and like, that's it. Like <laughs> Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. Is that a thing out there or, or that I'm totally missing or am I kind of accurate in saying that that's kind of the, the big stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, just like I'm doing, I don't really write comedy books first aside from like my first book which was nonfiction, and that's an entirely different world than what you're talking about yeah like if people don't appreciate that everything works different in nonfiction. it's it's sold differently it's published differently it's worked on differently different people read it different standards apply i think there's plenty of room for straight comedy books in like biography and nonfiction. But yeah, in terms of like, in terms of like your catch 22 or your like confederacy of dunces, I don't know that anybody's doing straight comedy books anymore. I'm sure somebody is, but it's not somebody I've heard of. So yeah, I'm certainly doing it too. I'm doing genre comedy. I do mostly horror comedy. Uh, Carrier Wave was played a little bit straighter, but it still had tons of moments of comedy. That's kind of more how I do it is I write the genre book and then there's comedy in it. Right. And I, I think that works pretty well it works for me it's what i want to do i think that's probably the big thing right now but yeah we used to have you know flagship straight up comedy book titles and that that sort of seems to if not went away certainly fallen by the wayside do you would you have any theories on why we don't really see that uh i don't know i think maybe just comedy went in enough other directions in enough other places that if you want to laugh like the world's your oyster you know you can look for comedy in tons of your favorite shows that also do this, this, and this, that also supply this character arc that also supply, you know, this world building or, or some other mechanic that you're interested in. You can find humor in your video games. It used to be, everything used to be much more straightforward before media was everywhere and everything. So there was a space where I, I feel like laughing. Uh, I certainly don't have a TV in my pocket to watch the Honeymooners or whatever. I'm going to bring this funny book with me that was your option. And now I do have this thing in my pocket that will show me a really good stand-up comedian if I want. It'll show me all the whitest kids you know sketches if I want to revisit them. It'll show me whatever comedy I want. And I think it just, it's so much focus to like sit with a book, you know? And we have to make them, we have to make them care about characters and follow comedy arcs and or, or follow character arcs and to work comedy into that as well. It's a, it's a hard trick to pull off and to do it in a straight comedy book might just be too difficult to like really get mainstream anymore. It, it certainly seems like a, a very, you want the rise and fall and you don't want your book to be totally serious all the time. And so, you know, you want to break things up a little bit. So you have little funny bits or whatever. And, you know, some people are heavier on it. Some people are lighter, but, but man, the straight up, I need to write a joke on every page kind of thing. That feels like it would be such a skill set. I mean, that's what we do on the site is that we, we just write something dense with jokes and it's got its own build and its own angle and its own flow. Yeah. But it's also asking only a little bit of somebody's time. It's saying, here's 15 minutes that I want out of your day to read this thing and experience it. And that's, that's a trick. It's, it's so hard to get people to do that. Yeah. <laughs> to just read, to just read a comedy thing. And, and, and that's only 15 minutes, a book you're asking like 
depending on how fast you read, how long the book is, like eight hours, 10 hours of their life, straight up to these jokes. It can be exhausting. And it's certainly exhausting as a prospect to be like, well, maybe I only want 15 minutes of those jokes. So maybe I'm not going to buy that book. Maybe I want two hours. Maybe I'm going to watch that movie. It's just, I think it's spoiled for choice and people chose not to do that. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever been intrigued by or tried to get into the more performative aspect of comedy doing stand up or or acting or anything like that or are you much more comfortable behind the keyboard fuck no <laughs> i would i would <laughs> hate that uh no i'm way more comfortable behind the keyboard but the sort of necessity of at least the podcast yeah has definitely brought me out and made me do that have forced myself to do that i have fun i enjoy it uh after I talk for like two hours or so, my voice just gives out. That's how big of an introvert I am. My body is physically not trained to like perform. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And like, I don't, man, I'm, I'll tell a story, fairly related story. I was uh, for the, for the Unnoticeables, the Vicious Circuit series. They did a pretty good press tour for the first book, at least. Yeah. And they, they just, they booked all of these things. They set them all out and they were like, okay. Here's here's the itinerary we have for you. We've got you going to this con. You're going to this place and doing a reading the next day. And then you're going to this con the next day. And you're going to these two places to do readings. And then day after that, you're going to this con up here. And, and nobody ever thought to ask me, hey, have you ever read anything you've ever written in public before? Because <laughs> the answer was no. Oh, I had no idea what to do. And the very first time I had to like speak in public to anything more than like a college classroom was san diego comic-con on a panel oh no on a panel with some of the biggest names oh that i, I don't want to re re repeat for a couple of reasons but there was like three thousand people in attendance and it was the Jeez. it was the first thing i had ever been asked to do and just just walking into comic-con as kind of an introvert was just shut down yeah. i had no idea what to do i had no idea what to do with my body like where to go or what how to stand and then i met I don't know, 800 other writers that day. And I was supposed to like mix and meet their names and meet them and remember their names and then go to do this panel and then do a, a huge book signing. And then like, and then the next day they sent me to like do a reading. And I was like, okay, well, I'm braced for this. And I showed up and there was like three people there. <laughs> so now this is, this is the other side of the coin where I've, I've never read anything I've done to a room full of, of less than like a college course. So when it's three people and I'm ju you're just like, which one do I look at? Do I look at Dave? Oh, man. Because here's Dave. Here's, do I look at Beth? Hi, Beth. What about Marty? Marty's over here. That's it. Like, it's just, it's wildly different skill sets that they threw me into. And I was not at all prepared for it. Nobody had prepared me for it. I didn't have time or inclination to take classes. Like, I am not, it, it has not been my jam at all. I'm getting more into it with the podcasts coming out of it. But like, that was my trial by fire and I got over the nerves Oof. of it. But it's also, man, it's a skill set to be publicly and in person entertaining when it's not just like drunk with your friends at a bar. Because I, I rule at that. I'm great drunk with my friends at a bar. It does not apply. It does not transfer over to like sketch comedy, which is just, it's so hard. Like what those people do. It's so hard to be an actor, an entertainer, somebody in person. It's not like I write the funny jokes so I can do this. Because sometimes you think that, and and you are incorrect if you think that. I'm I'm always amazed at at writers who will go out and like go to a convention and and it doesn't matter the size of the room whether it's big or small, but they'll work the crowd and they'll be perfect 
for an hour. Yeah, those sons of bitches. And, and it, I, I kind of hate their guts. Yeah, a lot. Like, and you just don't. <laughs> it was like the first time. It was like seeing John Hamm outside of like the Don Draper role. Oh. When like you, he's great in it. And you're like, ah, oh, he's a handsome man. He's a great actor. And then he goes on like 30 Rock and he's really funny. And then you see him in an interview and he's super friendly and everybody loves him. And you're like, fuck you. What are you doing? You got it. You can't do this. Yeah. You you can't be intelligent and talented and nice. Like, at least be an asshole behind the scenes. Right. Because then we can talk about you behind your back. You can't. You have to pick one thing because I am barely one thing. And I can't. I can't do two. And slowly over like a decade, I'll learn to do two. But like, yeah, people out there doing everything. And I, yeah, I don't understand them. I'm not that beast. I was never that beast. Uh, I always I always wanted to be that beast. And and I there was a, who doesn't want to be that beast? It's a magnificent beast. Yeah, there's a point at which you're just like, nah, I got to accept who I am. Yeah, you certainly after that whole comic contour, I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do parts of this. I'm never going to be that guy. I'm never going to be like, like, put me on a panel with somebody that just owns it. And you're like, I'm the guy that has to just, I'll come in with a joke here or there, maybe an observation, but you got to let that other person shine if they're going to. Yeah. So yeah. I can't, I can't fight you for that room. Like it's just, it's just going to be Nixon sweating on TV at that point. Everybody's going to be like, oh, this is unpleasant. Well, and you, I, I'm sure you've been on panels and, and plenty of listeners will have gone to panels with, people up there who there's somebody who doesn't have it, but really wants it and will fight for it. And that always, it always feels so awkward. Yeah. It's so much worse than if, if somebody realizes they don't have it and will just chip in once in a while and are like, let the other person shine. You'll, you can still come away with a positive impression of them. You'd just be like, Oh, that's not their thing, but their book sounded interesting and they were pretty funny or interesting or whatever. Versus if you think, I'm going to take this. It's just, it makes it unpleasant for everybody. I got a, I got put on a military fantasy panel once, uh, and, uh, with a couple of reasonably big authors and, and it was, you know, it was probably 300 people or so in the room. And the, uh, and I just, uh, but like everybody else on the panel was like ex military or like huge gun nuts and like, <laughs> like, or historians or something like that. And I'm sitting there like, Oh man, I just, I just write what, thinks what i think is fun like that's it i don't have any qualifications i like to do the stories yeah you guys <laughs> don't put me on anything that requires any expertise other than like what i have just done a lot of times i've been put on like comedy in something comedy and horror comedy and writing comedy and like genre fiction that's great i can tell jokes and talk to you about what i think about comedy but if if you put me on anything that's like more advanced than that if it's if it's military or whatever i haven't done a military thing if it's historical don't don't put me on anything that requires any secondary field of expertise. I know some of these people are like, are like ex tacticians or whatever that have then gone into books. I'm like an ex nothing. I'm, I'm a current book. I'm a current book guy. I always feel weird. Cause I didn't have a career before I became an author. Like I worked a couple of crap jobs and, and you meet those people who are like, Oh yeah, I was an anthropologist for 30 years. And you're like, Oh, you're like a real human. <laughs> oh, you know stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. No, I was I was failing IT support until I started writing comedy. And then they're like, yeah, do that. So that's what I do. And yeah. I, I didn't even know I, I didn't even know IT support. I couldn't tell you a single thing that is relevant to the computers of today. I was a waiter before that. I was a terrible waiter. It's just a god awful waiter. <laughs> couldn't tell you anything about how to wait tables. Pretty much just jokes and stories. That's all I got. But trying to trying to compete with somebody who has like a real skill set is 
it's always like, come on, man, leave leave a little for the guy who just makes some shit up. <laughs> or just just don't put that guy on the panel. It's fine. I can miss that room. Yeah, it's fine. It'll be OK. Well, hey, man, I've been keeping you a long time, but I like to I like to end these with asking a particular question. But I, I'm not sure it'll apply to you as we've already discussed some of your eating habits. Um, what's the last thing you ate that just blew your mind that you still think about that food? Oh, man. Uh, you know what? I had an amazing burger and I I'm mostly off of red meat these days, especially now after my GI system just went to hell, like a burger will kill me outright. But every once in a while, I'd, I'd go have a burger. I had this amazing burger, just medium rare caramelized onions, like this fancy, it's some sort of whiskey infused bacon thing. Oof. It was on. a, And this is the other important part, just as important, if not more important. It was on a sunny day on like an outdoor patio with like a nice beer in my hand. And it was just such a good moment. And I'm so mad that I can't go do that like tomorrow. Ah, man, those, you know, that's something that I think you don't talk about. Like, like real chefs will talk about like setting and everything like that. But, but man, like, Mm -hmm. like the setting of, of what you're eating can really affect it. Like I went, like my wife and I went to like a really fancy local, um, italian place right after we moved to utah and the food was good but like it was so fancy that it was packed on a weeknight with shoulder to shoulder like there was no room between the tables yeah and and we just never talk about that night like it was just it was a non-thing even though we spent like four hundred dollars like and that's like disappointing but like honestly i would trade that for what you just described like a perfect sunny day and a burger. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, not too not too crowded. It wasn't even that crowded. We went in like a like a weekday, like you said, and there was just there was nobody at the tables next to us. And it was it was wonderful. And I, I look forward to doing whatever equivalent I can do. Some some damn chicken sandwich. All right. I'll find a chicken sandwich that's really good and I'll I'll do that. Chicken sandwich and I don't know, an iced tea. I guess it's my equivalent. Oh, that sounds so sad. <laughs> you know what? People crap on chicken. I love chicken. Learning to. I think you can do anything with chicken. Yeah, you, you sure can. I, I'm going to miss the beer part of that. Though. Oh, man. Yeah. That was novelist and comedy columnist Robert Brockway. Thanks again to Robert for taking the time to chat with me. You can find links to Robert's website, Patreon, and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.